Hey, it's Kristen. Thanks for joining us on Rational in Portland. My guest on this episode is Jonathan Cho. I am a longtime fan of Jonathan. Jonathan has been a journalist for more than 20 years. He was with the ABC affiliate Como News in Seattle for a while. I was following him on his Twitter feed for I don't even know how long. He was one of the few reporters who was willing to cover the homeless crisis in Seattle in a way that was done in real time. So he would get, he would just go right into the middle of a camp. And he was just one of the few engaged in an unvarnished look at homeless encampments and at quote unquote houseless advocates. And his reporting was fascinating because nobody really does that kind of reporting anymore. First of all, there's no money in it. It's too expensive to have people go out and do kind of real-time reporting like that. For whatever reason, he was able to finagle a way to do it. He's still on Twitter. He's no longer with Como, and we'll get to that story in a minute. But he is still on Twitter. He's at Cho Show, C-H-O-E-S-H-O-W. He is now a Discovery Institute senior fellow and journalist. He's written for the Post Millennial. He's written for the Daily Wire. He has um, a TikTok at Cho Show, and his Twitter is just absolutely incredible because he's doing all of his reporting on his Twitter now. So he's going out live to all these various situations, like the one he talks about in this episode, and he's still dealing with, I think, is Camp Hope in Spokane, Washington. And he goes to these places and he figures out what's going on and he asks really hard questions and he doesn't just gloss over or just say, oh, there's a homeless encampment in Spokane and people are upset about it. He actually digs in and does interviews with all the players. And that's part of why I just absolutely loved following him and enjoyed him so much. So he's an, he's an Asian journalist and he live tweeted a Proud Boys protest that was at the Washington State Capitol of Olympia on March 19th. I remember watching it on Twitter and thinking it was interesting and paying attention to the kind of footage that he was getting because obviously the Proud Boys are in an incendiary group. They're an extremist right-wing group that tends to foment, engage in, encourage violence. So understandably, Jonathan was there reporting on it, seeing if anything was going to go down. And he recapped that protest with a photo montage that included a, a sound um, that was in the background, like some music in the background. And it turns out what he 
picked up, they were blasting from, the Proud Boys were blasting music from a speaker that was strapped over the shoulder of one of the protesters. And what the music that was playing was a, apparently, a white supremacist song that Jonathan had never heard before. I had never heard before. I had no idea what it was. Anyway, his video picked up that music. He couldn't make out the words. He'd never heard it in his life. And then the cancellation started with him. And I know that word is thrown around a lot, but I think it's real. Um, I think that cancellation is a targeted harassment campaign to, against a particular person. And the idea is to ruin that person's life and get them fired and, and to also demonize anyone associated with that person from like their friends, their employer, any followers they have on social media, they're suddenly demonized as well. They're deemed unclean and, and you demand that in this case, say Jonathan be held quote unquote accountable. And so in this case, they harassed his employer until his employer fired him. They, their goal was to create a sort of like a social death and mark Jonathan as untouchable and contagious and engage in this um, climate, create this climate of fear so that Jonathan would be erased. And his side of the story about how his footage just happened to pick up this music was not good enough. Yeah, um, and his side of the story about how he was he was not platforming. They love to say platforming. If you cover something, you're platforming someone. No, he was covering a Proud Boys rally. And he thought it was newsworthy. I, I tuned in because I thought it was newsworthy. I mean, they, there's almost always some kind of violence involved. And you never know what kind of unpredictable event is going to happen. And instead of having an ideological disagreement with Jonathan about whether the Proud Boys are newsworthy. Um, that didn't happen. It was just a full-on cancellation campaign. And the good news is, even though Como fired him, Jonathan is not giving up. He's not going away. I mean, he's been intimidated. There have been pictures drawn of him, pasted on trees, um, he, signs posted about him around Seattle as some kind of far-right uh, person that people should stay away from. Again, they're encouraging these far left activists are encouraging some kind of cancellation of him and creating this social contagion around him. The good news is he got picked up by the Discovery Institute. And so he his journalism is being funded. But he's been all over. He's been a journalist for years and years and years. He was in Chicago. He was in Minneapolis. He was in he was in Boston. And then he went to Seattle. And you know what I love about Jonathan? He's not afraid. He gives the unvarnished truth about everything that's going on. He's not afraid to do it. And he keeps going, even though he's received all these threats and he's constantly getting horrific uh, tweets at him and direct messages and people trying to dox him and just constant harassment. He keeps going. And it's working. His 
journalism, I think, in a lot of ways, is better than ever because it's all him. He kind of gets to do what he wants, is my understanding. And he's not constrained by a corporation. And so if you go to his Twitter, what he's able to cover is absolutely and totally incredible. And he's got 41,000 followers now. So he's not afraid to continue to engage in this kind of journalism. And frankly, we need it. Our journalism is watered down and we don't get the truth about anything. And he's out there giving you the truth about what's going on in Seattle, what's going on in Washington state. If you live in Seattle, I highly recommend that you tune into him. I am so excited to introduce my guest, Jonathan Cho. Jonathan, it's so good to see you. Hi. Hey, what's up? Look, I consider you, uh, it's great to finally meet you, consider you, a, uh, you know, at the very least an industry friend. Yeah, I do too, Jonathan. Thank you. We connected over Twitter just so the listeners have some context. And then, of course, we've talked on the phone a few times and I expressed my admiration for your journalism and we've been following each other for a while on Twitter. And your Twitter is the only place I can go to find out what's going on in Seattle. But of course, you've been a journalist for 20 years. So I'm dying to know about your background if you're willing to get into that. <laughs> uh, I have an interesting story. I moved around a lot. I was born in Fairfax, Virginia, but then I spent my formative years in Chicago, Illinois, in the inner city. Then pretty much from the age of eight until 25 I was in Boston, so I kind of have the best of both worlds living in two major metropolitan cities in America. So I still consider myself a shy kid and a Boston kid. So, How did you end up in Seattle on the West Coast? Uh, I ask myself that question every single day now. I've been here for uh, <laughs> two years. I showed up sight unseen. So, you know, as you know, I'm a television uh, reporter. And uh, for the past few months now, I've gone down this independent journalism road uh, at the Discovery Institute um, as a senior fellow. But prior to that, for uh, the past, I guess, you know, two plus years, I was working for the ABC affiliates. Long story short, my news director who hired me at the Fox station in Minneapolis got a job in Seattle and realized that I was available. And he said, Hey, Jonathan, why don't you come to Seattle? The city needs some, you know, hard nosed grinders, tough reporters, the bulldogs. And uh, we feel like you'd be a perfect fit here. So he sold me that bill of goods and I showed up sight unseen. And that's because I ended up coming here in 2020 during the height of the COVID pandemic. So I drove cross country, did not imagine I'd be getting from Boston to Seattle in such a, you know, short amount of time. I was going like 95 miles an hour, no cops, no nothing on the roads. Yeah, it was insane. But uh, I showed up right at the height of everything. COVID, the George Floyd, you know, social justice protests then erupted and in the middle of a homeless crisis and everything else that's been happening here in the Pacific Northwest. So it's been a wild two plus years so far. How does the homeless crisis on the West Coast compared to, say, Boston or the other cities, or even Chicago, the other cities that you've lived in? Because when there's complaints or at least discontent voiced about the homelessness crisis on the West Coast, I generally find that the... 
I, I call them the more positivity people, the, the, um, Portland's fine kind of people, at least for me in Portland, and I'm sure you have a Seattle's fine contingent, their response is things like, well, this is a big city and we live in a big city now and it's changed and there are more people here. Well, I've lived in two bigger cities than Portland and Seattle <laughs> prior to this. Much bigger. And I can tell you, I've never seen anything like this in my entire life, let alone my 20 plus year career. I, you know, being in the news business, you see it all, right? The highs and the lows, the, the, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. And look, you know, what many of uh, your listeners may not know is that I did a lot of volunteer work with homeless ministries in Chicago. So I thought the homeless crisis was bad in Chicago, but here in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle, it's a free for all. And again, in fairness, I came during the height of COVID-19 when the CDC gave guidelines, you know, hey, don't move encampments during a, an, you know, pandemic. But apparently it was like this prior to this. So, you know, it's just been getting out of control. But I've never seen anything like this where you have tent encampments, you know, sprouting up, you know, left and right on, on sidewalks in downtown Seattle, you know, in front of businesses. Uh, in alleyways. Uh, it, it's crazy. There's just now this culture of uh, lawlessness, I feel like. And and that's the key. Uh, when I lived in Boston and Chicago, they would never allow somebody to set up a tent in the middle of downtown. But here, you know, obviously it's now being cleaned, but that was allowed. And uh, that's something I've never seen before in my entire life. And I don't know if I'll ever see it again <laughs> anywhere else. And I'm assuming you're still in touch with people in Boston and Chicago, I mean, according to the people that you're still in touch with, did COVID change anything there? I mean, were encampments suddenly sprouting up after you left Boston for Seattle? That's a really good question regarding the comparison. So in fairness, um, I do stay in touch with a lot of my uh, industry friends in Boston and Chicago. And yes, uh, they did see a few more tents pop up in places like Boston Mass Ave, known as Methadone Mile. I actually went back this, you know, last month, uh, no, a couple months ago in June now. And I actually went to see what was happening on this stretch. But that got cleared really quickly. Um, and it has not come back. Oh, it and was I think cleared during COVID? It, well, it was cleared after. It was cleared this past winter. Okay. Um, so I, again, I feel like uh, just in the you know, end of 2021, beginning of 2022 is when cities started to really start addressing this saying, okay, this is enough is enough. You know, we're kind of emerging out of COVID now, just something we're going to have to learn to live with. But these encampments, we can't allow this. Um, so in Boston, they cleared it, they got some, you know, tiny house type, you know, villages, these small pallet houses, uh, they built some more, you know, shelter options, and they moved a lot of those folks out. But uh, again, that's the difference, right? It's about enforcement now. And here in Seattle, I can't speak for Portland, uh, Kristen, because I haven't been out there to report on, you know, your city's homeless crisis. But here in Seattle, um, you, you got to give credit to Mayor Bruce Harrell, his administration. I mean, honestly, there was really nowhere else to go but up. Uh, he is on a furious pace clearing these encampments. However, uh, <laughs> these encampments keep coming back and sprouting up in other neighborhoods, other parts of Seattle. And right now there's no clear plan to get in front of these when it's like three, four, five tenths, uh, you know, to really get in front of these before these spiral out of control. And that's something that this administration is really going to have to address 
again, he's uh, Bruce Harrell. He took over in January. Um, so it's been, you know, almost, uh, what's the math on that? January, February, March, April, May, June, oh, about six months he's been in office now. So, uh, you know, it's still early in his administration, but this homeless crisis, he ran on addressing it. Uh, so we'll see what happens. It's still early, but uh, right now uh, there's there's definitely been some starts and stops in, in terms of dealing with this right now. And in terms of, for instance, Boston, like you talked about methadone mile, it sounds like that's a specific area where tents were popping up during COVID in Boston. My experience in Portland and I'm, I've got family in Seattle. I, I went to Auburn high school. I'm assuming, um, your experience in Seattle is similar. My experience, at least in Portland is these encampments are not concentrated in any particular area. I mean, sure, in the quote-unquote bad areas of town or bad area of town, there's always been a relatively large homeless population, but these encampments, I mean, we've, I I could walk to one from my neighborhood, and I ostensibly live in a quote-unquote nice neighborhood, and everybody I know, I mean, we, I just did a podcast with a woman who lives in a neighborhood called Laurelhurst, which is one of the nicest neighborhoods in Portland, and they have one of the biggest homeless encampments in the state of Oregon. So it's, at least for us in the Portland area, it's not confined to any particular quote-unquote bad area. What Do you know anything about Boston? I mean, were these encampments cropping up in all neighborhoods of Boston? No. And that's a big difference. Uh, Methadone Mile, I mean, uh, it's... It, it, it got its name because it's near a lot of social service agencies and support clinics for, you know, drug users um, and uh, homeless uh, shelters in that area. So it was confined. It just happened to blow up in that area. And of course, you know, there are a few other spots where these tents, uh, you know, sprouted up. But the pattern that I saw in Boston and in Seattle as well is that a lot of these tents and encampments end up sprouting up in industrial areas, in places where you have food banks where you have, you know, churches that help the homeless, uh, anything near support and services and near large urban centers as well for easy access, uh, as well as industrial areas. Because at least in Seattle, we're starting to see a lot of RVs, you know, just move around in these industrial areas, a, a neighborhood called Soto. Uh, that's like literally five minutes from downtown Seattle. That neighborhood just, uh, you know, has had multiple sweeps. Uh, but these RVs just keep on moving around. So in Seattle right now, and they've tried this in the past here in King County, they're trying to create these, you know, RV lots, these sanctioned RV lots where, you know, people living in RVs, if you actually ask a lot of them in Seattle, they'll say they're not homeless. They'll say that their vehicle is their home. So they need a place to put these. Obviously, they can't set up in businesses. They can't set up in, you know, public places where, you know, I've I've seen, and I have video of this where, you know, emergency vehicles, you know, with emergency first responders couldn't get down certain streets because they're so narrow and you have RVs blocking. You can't live that way. So again, right now, Seattle, it seems like it's making progress in certain neighborhoods. Like, for example, the downtown core, it is no doubt getting much clearer. And that was part of Bruce Harrell's strategy. But I mean, obviously, it's an optics play, right? It's tourism season. You're going to have to clear the main areas. And if you ask a lot of people, they'll say, oh, we don't see as many tents as we did a year ago. And that's true in the downtown core. But unfortunately, a lot of these tents and the RVs, they've now moved out to other neighborhoods in Seattle. And right now, there's no end in sight. And here's the other inconvenient truth. 
there's shelter and services being offered to the homeless before and during these these sweeps. But the problem is you can't force anybody to take services and the shelter options there. So for, you know, in Seattle, the, the ideal, you know, shelter option would be a tiny house village or a motel. Well, there just aren't enough. So you have these congregate situations where you may have to take a mat or share a room. And, you know, the homeless, they just don't want that option and they'll take their chances on the street. And because they know that the city can't force them to take these shelter options, there's now this culture, right? Word spreads fast on the street. They're not going to do anything. So it's like I went to this most recent sweep last week. They're like, okay, what park are you going to? What neighborhood only has one or two tents? Let's head there. It's absolutely wild. So it becomes a problem in another neighborhood once you move there. So is Seattle experiencing these homeless encampments in the quote unquote nice neighborhoods as well? I mean, yeah, I guess it depends uh, how you define nice. But yeah, there, I mean, look, there, there really hasn't been, uh, you know, I'd say, I mean, it's really hard to say what's considered a nice neighborhood. But I can tell you this much. Uh, there are neighborhoods with I guess more homes. affluent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess Seattle, I mean, everything's like on average a million dollars now is. for a home. But yeah, so you see, you just see tents everywhere. And, and you're seeing a lot on the highways. Um, but, you know, for example, I mean, here's the other beef, right? The Seattle City Council, the mayor or any other lawmakers, you know, you ask them, the K- King County Executive Dow Constantine, are there any encampments or tents in, or RVs in their neighborhoods? No, not not with it, not near their homes for, you know, at the very least. So I think that's kind of been a beef. And that's why you have a lot of neighbors who are dealing with the homeless crisis literally in their backyards or, you know, on their sidewalks. Why aren't these encampments being moved to these politicians, you know, neighborhoods? So it's really interesting, this dynamic. Uh, so right now there's sort of this wait and see. Um, but, you know, right now these encampments just keep popping up. For every encampment that gets swept, another one pops up in another neighborhood. And there's no end in sight. So honestly, if you were to ask me, is there a way to end this homeless crisis? No, the answer is no. I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. I think here the reality is it's about mitigation. How do you now limit this? How do you get as many people off the streets as possible? And I don't have that answer. I'm not a politician. I just cover this stuff. Why do you say you can't end it? It's never ended. I think the homeless is always, they've always been with us, right? In some form or another. I've never seen, you know, at least a major metropolitan city without a homeless person. So at least in my lifetime, I don't know anyone who has that answer. You know, what does it mean to truly end homelessness, right? I mean, I, I think the way our country is going, and this is more, you know, pie in the sky kind of big picture. I think we're going to see more homeless people the way our, our country is going. There's not enough housing. A lot more people, you know, drugs are just flooding our country from the Mexican cartels. The Chinese are providing the ingredients. We all know it's to destabilize our country. I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. So you have drugs, you have mental illness, you have the lack of housing. You're just going to see more of these situations just explode, I think, uh, across this country. Where do you think the homeless in, say, I mean, I I was in Chicago relatively recently, and it was pristine compared to Portland. Where, where do you think the homeless in places that you've been, like Chicago and, and Boston, where do they go? Do they go to shelters? They do. They go to shelters or they live, you know, in secluded places, under bridges and so on and so forth, places 
out of sight, out of mind. They're there. And the big difference also is here on the West Coast, you have this climate, right, that's suitable for living outside. You can't do that when it's like minus 30 in Minnesota or, you know, 10 degrees outside in Boston or or Chicago. It's just not there. It's not going to happen. So, of course, they're going to take the shelter options. Here, along with the lax enforcement, you also have this climate that allows for people to say, you know what, I'm just going to live outside 24-7, 365 days a year. So that's one of the biggest differences, too, and one of the biggest hurdles. You've been labeled right wing. My understanding is that, I mean, not that your political leanings have anything to do with your journalism, because I don't think that they do. But my understanding is that you're not you're you don't consider yourself a right winger. That's not your background. That's not your philosophy. You can see me right now just shaking my head. Yeah, I look, I, I feel like this country, it's people get pigeonholed, labeled for whatever reason, far right, far left, moderate, whatever. Look, just so you understand, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I grew up thinking I was a JFK Democratic liberal in Boston. You know, I'm about, you know, I watched the politicians in Boston growing up and in Chicago compromising right behind the scenes. I moved to Seattle, but I see everyone getting canceled if you don't agree. And I realize here, you know, in Seattle, it's just like, if you don't agree with me, you're on the outs and you're far right or you're a Republican. And so I, I don't know what to say about that. I consider myself an independent, a moderate. I voted Republican in the past. I voted Democrat probably more times than I have the GOP. But uh, apparently the issues that I'm tackling uh, like crime, like homelessness. Those are issues that tend to, you know, be of interest to a lot of folks uh, in the Republican Party. And I guess because of that, I have a lot of fans who are, you know, you know, in the GOP. And because of that, the, the folks, people who don't like my work have sort of put me into this category of being conservative or a Republican. And I'm like, look, I'm just a journalist trying to do my job, show what's going on out there. And, and, and I'm trying to be objective. You know, now these days in this fractured and polarized media landscape, it seems like you have to take a side. Um, but what I say is, of course, I have a bias. Of course, I have a particular leaning and a worldview and a value system. But at the very least, and this is the key, you have journalists now who say, no, I, this is the way I am. I'm an activist journalist. I'm not, Kirsten. I try to be objective. And what that means is to show as many sides as possible, whether or not I agree with it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. I mean, you you cover everything from Antifa riots to the Proud Boys rallies, um, which is how you were at Como, right? That's how you ended up exiting Como? Yeah, I was at uh, the ABC affiliate in Seattle. I was at Como. I was the lead reporter there. I had my own beat. I was on the crime beat, and then I yeah, got I started following to... you there when you were when you were at Como. I mean, a lot of us did, and just kind of continued with your independent journalism. But sorry, go ahead. Any anyway, I've I've been um, interested in what you're doing for a long time because, like you said from the beginning, even when you were at, at this um, syndicated news outlet, you were covering things that nobody else on the west coast was covering yeah and what's crazy is that you know and i got a i got a rude awakening when i showed up to seattle i told you i'm I'm from boston that's i reported for the nbc owned and operated station out there for three plus years that's my hometown and 
you know, I, I wasn't used to covering this type of news. And, uh, you know, I got a rude awakening, awakening to Seattle. Como is owned by Sinclair. And fair or unfair, they're, they're labeled sort of conservative, right-leaning, uh, you know, ownership group, right? This massive conglomerate that owns, you know, nearly 200 local television stations across the nation. And immediately when I try to interview certain politicians in Seattle or people on the street and I said I work for Como, they're like, oh, we're not going to talk to you. I'm like, uh, why not? Because you work for Sinclair. So immediately coming to Seattle, I was pigeonholed again, working for this news outlet because of its reputation as as right wing. It was like guilt by association. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm just trying to get your perspective. I'm not Republican. I'm not conservative. Just tell me what your thoughts are. I need to get the other side. And they wouldn't talk to me. So, uh, yeah, that's basically, you know, kind of the situation I started in. And, and that was my view of Seattle, that it was extremely polarized. People had an opinion. And if they didn't like you, they would completely cancel you or not talk to you. And that's just kind of the way I started working behind the eight ball. Uh, and, you know, I just happened to be on these beats like crime and homelessness that took me to the underbelly to places that, for example, the activists, you know, here in Seattle, when it comes to the homeless crisis, they want the homeless to stay on the streets for whatever reason. They'll say, don't move the homeless from encampments. And again, conveniently, none of these encampments are in front of the activists' homes. Um, but uh, they'll say, don't move the homeless until they get a studio apartment, uh, you know, or an apartment of their own with waterfront property in Seattle. And my friends, you know, especially my friends in the immigrant community, they're like, do these people understand that I work two jobs and I'm barely getting by and I'm just trying to make it in Seattle? It's not a right. It's a privilege, <laughs> you know? And that's the way I grew up, right, Kristen? You work hard. I understand life happens. Then you deal with it. But there's this attitude of entitlement in the activist community, it seems like, here in Seattle. Uh, and they feel as though the homeless are entitled to all these services along with that uh, perfect housing situations. So there you go. That's kind of my quick take. You covered an activist who invited a homeless person back to her house, right? Oh, man, I I would just uh, tell your audience <laughs> to go look at my work in the past uh, couple weeks. But yeah, for the past um, few months, I've been covering a lot of the homeless sweeps in Seattle. And the reason I go to cover these sweeps is not just to show the sweeps, but to actually to build relationships on the ground with the homeless. Because as I told you, I've worked in homeless ministry. But what I haven't really shared with many people is that I'm keeping track of these homeless folks because I want to see where they end up. I want to follow their stories. I want them to make it. And I want to know if I can in any way help them do that by simply maybe pointing them in the right direction, diverting resources to them. Uh, you know, so if they move from one park in Seattle and end up in another neighborhood, I can say, hey, social service agency, A, go over there. I just met Bob. He's staying there. He needs help. And I've done that. Okay, full disclosure. I've done that when I've taken my journalism hat off after hours. But I've also run into to this activist group that calls itself Stop the Sweep Seattle. They're here too. And they're, they're in Portland too. Yeah, and they're a group of quote-unquote mutual aid workers. What they do is they show up to these encampment sweeps, you know, coffee, donuts, food. They set up a table and they also help the homeless who refuse 
services and shelter being offered by the city and county. They help them move all of their belongings, provide brand new tents, uh, supplies, and move them to another neighborhood. And as you can imagine, what's happening here on the ground is that it's completely undercutting the mayor's strategy to get people off the streets and into shelters and on the journey back into you know, society where they're working a full-time job and can afford housing and can deal with their drug addiction and mental you know, health issues and so on and so forth. But again, the criticism, again, to, for, again, Stop the Sweep Seattle is they're just moving the problem from one neighborhood to another and not solving anything. On the flip side, you and in fairness, you have supporters of Stop the Sweep Seattle as well. You have people in the homeless advocacy community saying, hey, you know what? These shelter conditions are god awful. You know, you're going into these shelter situations that the city's providing uh, that, you know, have other homeless people. Some of them are mentally ill. They're on drugs. Some of them are criminals. I've heard so many times I can't bring my pets in because many of these shelters, you can't bring them in unless they're certified, you know, uh, therapy pets. Uh, you know, I can't go in uh, because it's only for women. I want to bring in my husband. Uh, and then, of course, there's I don't want to go into these places because I can't bring all my stuff, my 20 bicycles, my 10 backpacks, you know, and if I bring my personal stuff then it's going to get stolen. So I've heard all of these interesting reasons. And that's that's why you have others who say what Mutual Aid is doing, what Stop the Sweep Seattle is doing is actually a good thing. It's just buying them extra time until they can get the proper shelter or housing options. So that is kind of this vicious cycle, I call it, that the city is in right now. The mayor is clearing these encampments. Some people are getting shelter options and taking them. But many others now, again, like I said, word spreads quickly on the street. Hey, these shelter options are not good. I can't get a motel or a tiny house. So I'm just going to take my chances at another park, another neighborhood, and it's going to be two, three months till they move me anyways. So I'll keep on moving around. It's called the Seattle Shuffle. What's really interesting about that is I, I think there's there's obviously a debate going on in these progressive cities like Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, L.A., about what is really proper, right? Like, is is a house proper is is a house for every homeless person the only thing that they should accept is it is it a motel room is it an apartment of their own is it somewhere are they entitled to a pet are they entitled to stay in Seattle I mean are you entitled to live in the city that you point to on a map and decide you want to live in, even if you don't have the resources to do that. I mean, it, it raises all sorts of interesting questions about what would you, uh, what the expectations are and whether those are rational. Right. And whose expectations? So it's a values question, right? It's a worldview question. How do you see the world? Who's entitled to what? Again, like I said, I didn't grow up this way. I grew up where, hey, you worked hard. You made a living, you saved money, and you created you created your own opportunities and choice. I understand life happens, circumstances happen, but I was never given an apartment or a studio. And I know there's so many different variables. Life happens. People, 
you know, lose social safety nets. And I'm not, you know, against being compassionate and showing grace and, and trying to help people. But people have to want to help themselves at the end of the day. And a lot of homeless folks that I'm meeting along this journey as I'm reporting as well, I, I'm working on a story right now in the RV community here, here in Seattle. I have people on the record saying, leave me alone. I just want to live this way. And I say, why? Don't you want an apartment or a studio? No. They say, why would I want to pay rent? Why would I want to pay taxes? Why would I want to be a part of this rat race? I just want to live freely. That's why I've chosen this RV lifestyle. They tell me I can do my drugs freely. I can go to a food bank and get three free meals a day. This is like the only country in the world right now where you have all these social services, you have access to three square meals a day, and you're still trying to give them even more until they get into, I guess, the right situation or when they're ready to get off the streets. So at a certain point, as others have said, some type of tough love needs to be shown, I think, to folks who say, you know what, just leave me alone. Then we'll, I mean, people have to then say, well, you can't park your RV on a sidewalk in front of four million dollar houses, you know, and uh, you're going to have to move along. And uh, I think that is now the pushback. That this city, I think you have a lot of people in, in Seattle. What I've seen is you're starting to see uh, folks who are once scared to speak up because, quite frankly, they were afraid to get canceled. They were afraid to get targeted by these far left activists. Neighborhoods that are now banding together and saying enough is enough. I covered an encampment sweep in uh, this neighborhood uh, called Greenwood, you know, slash Licton Springs. And that is probably some incredible neighbor mobilization uh, that uh, probably needs to happen more often. And it is happening now. Uh, these neighbors banded together because it started off with two, three tents. Then it exploded into 20 plus because people swept from other areas of Seattle started hearing, hey, this is a safe place. You know, social service agencies are coming, dropping off food, blankets. No one's bothering us. The city's not sweeping. And these neighbors, meanwhile, you know, I did I did a story. I was the only journalist in Seattle covering this because no other news station was covering this. But then I there was surveillance video of people from this encampment urinating on people's bushes, st- trying to steal water. It got so bad, Kristen, where the neighbors started locking up their spigots. <laughs> I mean, that's what it's come down to now. Yeah, we neighbors have that too. Own hands, right? So a lot of these... You know, similar issues you're starting to see in Portland because you also realize that the the police, they don't have enough officers now. You know, this whole defund movement undercut public safety. Um, meanwhile, you know, uh, the mayor has a homeless response strategy. But, you know, there are all these different factors that go into how you prioritize which ones get swept first. And there's a schedule. But it's not being made public here in Seattle. And the mayor, deputy mayor, Tiffany Washington here in Seattle, admitted it's because we don't want the far left activists to disrupt these sweeps. So, I mean, it is just absolutely wild that the mayor's policy is being influenced by far left, you know, activists and their threats and their insane behavior. Then you have, you know, neighbors recognizing, oh, my gosh, the police aren't going to come in time. So they have to take matters into their own hands by extra surveillance cameras locking up their spigots 
Uh, and meanwhile, they're taking matters into their own hands. I have video of neighbors confronting homeless people, you know, bringing in new tents. There was a sweep and then the neighbors, you know, another guy in a tent tried to come back and a neighbor comes out and says, no more, no more, enough is enough. I mean, how crazy is it that in a major metropolitan city like Seattle, we're starting to see these scenes unfold, that law enforcement is not out there. So neighbors are now having to confront these homeless people uh, from coming in. And I feel bad for the homeless as well. They're just trying to find a place to stay. And they're having these clashes and encounters with neighbors. I mean, it's just all backwards right now. Do you have any sense of how we can incentivize people to help themselves? You know, uh, so what I'm going to be doing in the next few months with my reporting is, and it seems like I'm just showing the, you know, the underbelly, all the problems of this homeless crisis. And there's just so much that isn't being shown. You know, I'm only one person right now trying to cover the city's entire homeless crisis. But for every problem, for every scenario, there's, again, the mother, the father, somebody's son, somebody's daughter. I'm always reminded of that. These, these homeless people aren't all criminals. And I'm talking to them and I'm trying to tell their stories. And yeah, they 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 need support. They need people to walk with them, but they're going to have to want it. And I'm going to be going to Chicago in the next few months. And there's a ministry called Breakthrough Urban Ministries. And they're a Christian-based organization. But what they did is for every homeless person, they surrounded themselves, this homeless person, with eight other people, a network of eight people to walk with one person until they started getting ready, you know, uh, until they were ready to take that next step off the streets. And I think that type of model, it's not going to just be public policy to answer your question. That's going to, you know, mitigate this homeless crisis or help people, you know, get off the streets and stay off the streets. So that's the key, right? A lot of times, you know, you have these cities who aren't tracking what ultimately happens, right? You only track the intake, but what happens after that? Do they make it eventually into the apartment? You don't have a lot of social service agencies, let alone cities, tracking what happens or following their progress three, four, five years later. Because I think in, in some cases, you have people, unfortunately, who end up back on the streets. But again, I think it's not just the public sector, it's the private sector, it's the nonprofits, it's the, the faith community that will have to come up with these creative strategies. And, uh, it, it, you know, the saying, it really does take a village uh, to get these people off the street. So in terms of incentive, I think if you, I believe in the one person at a time strategy, there is no one size fits all. But what I've seen successful is this breakthrough urban ministries model in Chicago, where you, you surround homeless people who, who want to take this next step with a network. Not just one social service worker, but a network of people willing to fight for them, walk with them, um, and show them some tough love also along the way, uh, and, and walk with them until they make it. And I think that's what it's going to have to take. We're going to have to see more models like that, and that's something I'm going to be featuring in the next few months. That's, I know, I, there's an organization that I know you're familiar with, and I'm, I'm f friends with these people as well. Uh, Andrea Suarez and Kevin Dahlgren, We Heart Seattle. And that's the kind of thing that they're 
doing in Seattle, but they're very small. You know, it's just a, a pretty small organization, but that is the kind of thing that they do. And Kevin works for the city of Gresham, which is in Portland Metro actually. And he's been able to clean it up based on those techniques. I mean, he gets to know these people. He documents who they are. He figures out where they're from, uh, what relatives that they have that are still living that may not speak to them anymore because they've worn out their welcome with drugs and what have you and and were sort of exiled from those communities, but helps them get back in touch with those people and and just keeps asking them if they want some drug treatment, mental health treatment. And he says usually at some point they say yes, but like you said, you know, the stop the sweeps people they don't just want to keep homeless where they are. They're also opposed to Kevin and Andrea and groups like We Heart Seattle, We Heart Portland. They're opposed to them getting to know the homeless and and repeatedly asking them if, if they're ready to accept help. And that's so strange to me. I mean, they consider it harassment, those kinds of questions. And it's just, it's... You know, it's once once a day, maybe once a week that he gets back in touch with these people and asks them if they're ready to, to go in a rehab or what have you, but or go, you know, get reunited with a, a mother or an aunt or something and figure out a living situation that is not sprawled out on a street or a, a sidewalk. And um, they, so they get a lot, fair amount of pushback for that. So like you said, it, I, I don't know, I, I wonder if... if and, and then, if, as you know, another pushback is, well, if it's a ministry, it's religious-based, and what kind of religious things are you going to have to listen to, or are you going to have to do in exchange for assistance? Um, I don't know if that would fly here. I mean, I love yeah, what you're saying, the, but... Well, I, I think that's the key, right? At the end of the day, people have free will choice, and they can do whatever they want. Uh, and unfortunately, with some of these uh, religious groups, because of their stance on you know, LGBTQ issues, for example, you know, they, they won't be eligible for funding, uh, you know, from the city or the county. And I, I get that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I would say there, at least in Seattle, there are three organizations that I would personally, that I've seen, that I, I've met their, their leaders and I've seen them work. Uh, there are three that I would endorse. And, you know, it, one would be We Heart Seattle. Uh, the other would be, you know, uh, Union Gospel Mission. And the other is uh, Reach Ministry. And what they do is, even though, you know, We Heart is not a faith-based group, uh, Reach Ministry and Union Gospel are, what the three of them do, the common thread and theme is they work with people one-on-one, and they follow up, and they do follow through. And that's the key. I really believe you've got to walk with these people. You've got to walk with the homeless. You've got to let them know that you're their friends, that you care about them. Again, that you acknowledge them as somebody's father, mother, daughter, son. You're not going to judge them. And again, I can't speak for other groups that have maybe used certain tactics to espouse their you know, religion or, or whatever or their values. But Union Gospel doesn't do that. Reach Ministry doesn't do that. Oh, Salvation Army as well. They don't do that. You have a choice. You know, it's not like if you, you don't listen to the sermon, you don't get food. That's not the case. That's the type of deception and, and the lies these other far left activist groups, you know, you know, espouse. Uh, because what's really happening is with, for example, We Heart, 
getting back to that, they face so much criticism. They haven't been perfect, but they're actually getting results. And they literally go in there, as they say, boots on the ground, and they are working with people and literally holding their hand and saying, Mary, it's time. Let's go. I will do X, Y, and Z with you. Are you ready? And they basically give them a choice, but at the same time, they're saying, let's go. They give them encouragement. They give them a push. They give them that extra nudge. And the vast majority that groups like We Heart work with, they are so successful in getting these homeless off the streets and into places and on this journey back to recovery because they are doing this one-on-one work. And again, a lot of these far-left activist groups, these mutual aid groups, they're not doing that. They're setting up tables, offering donuts and coffee, and then moving people around and moving on, patting themselves on the back. And that's the gist of it. And, and again, it's a values question. It's a tactic. It's a strategy question, right? But that's what I've observed. I tend to favor and lean more towards groups that want to work with the homeless one-on-one, walk with them until they get off the streets. Do you think that this culture... And I, I think that that term is right. That was that was your term, and I think that's exactly right. Do you think this culture of this pushback against talking to the homeless, walking with the homeless, asking them if they need assistance, what, what you and I have seen work, do you think this culture of pushing against that will change? I mean, like you said, Seattle is starting to change, right? You don't have Jenny Dirk in there anymore, this summer of love thing that she was trying to spin about the the uh, occupation zone on Capitol Hill that ended up, you know, there was like a murder of a young person there. I mean, that, that was yeah, the only way it was it. disbanded, right? Um, I, I, she's gone, right? The city attorney is new, is my understanding, right? So, I and mean, do you think that culture is changing? And um, do you think it will continue to change to the extent that that this pushback against these kinds of organizations will at least quiet to the point where we can see some real progress? Um, short answer is yes. I see the you know wind blowing and now in the other direction. If you read the tea leaves and especially the city council, you, uh, you know, two years ago, you, you and I won't name the city council members here in Seattle, but you had some who were, you know, marching in the BLM, uh, you know, protests and you know, they were taking selfies in the, you know, chop zone. And uh, now they're saying, oh, let's we got to move these homeless encampments. And, you know, they're 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 all politicians at the end of the day. Right. And they have to listen to their constituents and many of their constituents now, even the ones who consider themselves progressive, the homeless crisis, the drug use, the crime. Those numbers are all up across the board. And at a certain point, even the ones who were like, you know what, let's defund the police. They're not like, oh, actually, uh, sorry. Uh, I think that was a failed social experiment. Time out. Let's uh, go back in time and start to unwind this. And, you know, unfortunately, the damage is done in certain areas. We know this is happening in a lot of places where, you know, uh, you know a city like Seattle continues to struggle with uh, retaining officers, recruiting officers. Um, and officers here are stretched thin, the good men and women of SPD. Uh, they're doing the best that they can. Uh, but, you know, it, this this lacks drug culture. You know, I've done several stories now on people just doing meth and cocaine and all kinds of drugs, fentanyl, overdosing on the street. Uh, you know, one of our senators recently said she spoke to 
you know, Seattle's police chief. And uh, the chief told her that, you know, there are at least four overdoses a week in Seattle that first responders are, you know, attending to. I mean, think about the drain in resources. So as lawmakers allow, you know, this, you know, lax culture of drug use to flourish, saying, hey, we've got to, you know, create safe injection sites. We've got to give them the needles, the pipes, so they don't get diseases and die from that. What about the overdoses? Are you factoring in the number of overdoses and everything else that's, you know, becoming a drain on culture and society? And and, and that's what's happening. I mean, that's what's happening. I feel like there is a, a change right now in direction. We've seen it with, like you mentioned, the Seattle city attorney, a Republican, uh, elected for the first time since the 80s, you know, in Seattle. That's significant. So uh, I'm not saying that Seattle overnight is going to suddenly turn Republican or GOP. I think it's still far from that. But you have a mayor in Bruce Harrell, who's a moderate Democrat, who understands that, you know, you've got to deal with the crime. You've got to deal with the drug use. You've got to deal with the homeless crisis. Um, so it's, again, it's kind of a wait and see process still. I think some neighbors are uh, willing to be a little bit more patient, patient, but time is running out. They want to see results. Encampments are being cleared, but they also want to make sure they stay cleared. And the problem just doesn't move to another neighborhood. You know, we talked about how people like We Heart get a lot of pushback. You get a, a ton of pushback on, on because I'm just showing the truth on the ground, and my video doesn't lie. Well, and what cracks me up is people call you a white supremacist. I mean, I'm looking at you right now. All you need to do is do a Google search of Jonathan Cho. You're not a white person. What is your ethnicity? I am a Korean American proud Asian American, and I have been a huge advocate of just more diversity in media and covering issues in all communities of color. So when somebody calls me a white supremacist, a Nazi, a fascist, it's usually somebody from the far left who, again, again, the inconvenient truth is I'm a minority. And the fact that I'm showcasing all, all this insanity is something that the far left just can't deal with right now. It just blows their mind. So they continue to attack me. I have thick skin. They're not going to stop me from reporting because I'm reporting the truth. And we're starting to now see this change uh, in, in culture, I feel like, in Seattle. And look, at the end of the day, there's still tons to report on. There are tons of issues that are not being covered by the mainstream press. And honestly... Kristen, that's been probably the most disappointing piece to this, that the mainstream media in Seattle, the local media, quite frankly, they're failing. With a handful, Aside from a handful of reporters who are trying, I know what's going on in the newsrooms. I stay in touch with virtually every single, you know, you know, reporters from virtually every single newsroom. And they're telling me, Jonathan, we want to cover what's going on with the homeless. We want to cover these issues when it comes to race and ethnicity and diversity they're just not letting them do it. They're not letting them cover what's really happening in these neighborhoods. And that's why. And this is, I guess, to my benefit. The, the community, Seattle, they're coming to me. They're sending me the tips now. Uh, but I'm only one person. I can only cover so much. So I want others in the mainstream press to go into these places, to go into these encampments, to build relationships, to tell these stories that are not being told. Because at the end of the day, you know, the public... When they don't see it, when they don't have all the information, when they don't, you know, you know, have all the details, they can't make, you know, you know, an informed choice. And that's why I'm in the news media, right? Still, to this day, 
You know, I had many opportunities after I left Como to go to other markets, other cities, you know, and one day that time will come. But for the time being, I'm a, I'm, I have this one-year fellowship to really focus and drill down on the homeless crisis, not only in Seattle, not only this region, but across the country, and figure out what are some of the solutions, where is it working, and most importantly, tell the stories of the homeless. Remind our audience, these are people, like I said, somebody's mother, father, son, daughter, you know, who who ran into tough circumstances and situations. But now we got to, as a society, as a community, and I'll get off my soapbox here in a moment, but I truly believe we all have a role to to help, at least to try, right? At the end of the day, I always say, are we at least trying and what are you going to do about it? That's it. Tell us about the Discovery Institute. That's where you are now and you're a fellow there. Yeah, no, it's uh, considered a, a think tank. It's been in Seattle for decades. It's, a, it's, it's, you know, they're known for, you know, all kinds of issues under the sun. But I joined up because, you know, the president came to me and, you know, love him to death. His name is Steve Burei. And he said, hey, Jonathan, I noticed that, you know, you're no longer at Como, but we'd love for you to continue that work because we feel like Seattle really needs it. So I joined their fix homelessness team and you can see a lot of our work at fixhomelessness.org. Um, and, you know, it's just been a real privilege to join a team that's really focused on these issues, not just from a policy standpoint. But the key is the reason why we're getting so much traction now, especially in the city, is because we're driving a lot of these narratives through video. At the end of the day, it's the video. Seeing what's really happening on the ground that's really driving conversations, inciting a response, and that's what we can do. That's the best I can do as a journalist, right? Hey, I'm not going to tell you how to think, but I'm going to show you what's happening. And you decide, is this, is this something that you want? What can you do about it? And that's been the beauty of this journey, right? I've met so many new people, people I never would have met. And I'm covering stories that I never would have been able to cover at Como uh, that I'm covering right now. So that's been pretty cool. That's what I love about you. Tell everybody your Twitter handle because everybody needs to follow you on Twitter. You're so good at capturing this video. You are a real beat reporter. You're on the ground when this stuff is happening and unfolding in front of you. It's it's the stuff you get, and it's you, yourself. It's not some lackey intern or something. It's you, Jonathan Cho, capturing all this, interviewing the people as it's all happening. It's incredible. Where where do people find you on Twitter to access these videos? Yeah, you know, thanks again for uh, allowing me to plug uh, my Twitter handle. I'm primarily on Twitter right now. It's just where all the action is. It's it's the, the, the platform that has the most engagement, at least in terms of the, you know, work that I'm doing. It's at Cho Show, C-H-O-E-S-H-O-W, uh, and you can find me on Twitter and, you know, and if anyone wants to talk, I always respond to pretty much every single DM. I look into every single tip because at the end of the day, what the community send, what sends, what neighbors are talking about, that's a lifeblood of a journalist's work. And I always protect my sources. If you need to stay anonymous, you can give me a tip anonymously. Um, but I follow up on everything because if I were on the other side and I, if I, you know, needed help from a journalist, that's the response that I would want as well. So that's what I try to do. I, I look into everything. 
Well, and you talked about like cancel the cancel culture that's going on in the West Coast, going on in Seattle. What's weird to me is Boston seems like a progressive place to me. I mean, I know Cambridge isn't Boston, but I think we all think of Boston. We think of places like Harvard and MIT, and it's sort of the one of the bastions of the the university culture, which I think most people assume is pretty far left. Um, and you didn't see this kind of cancel culture there? Never. And especially, you know, you know, despite what you, you know, like you said, you're absolutely right. So places like MIT and Harvard, I mean, Boston is known as a college town, right? It's where the elites, you know, mingle, they, you know, that's the least reputation, the Ivy Leagues and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to the people actually living there, it's not like that at all. And keep in mind, Boston's a very transient city. People go there for, you know, their PhDs or master's and undergrad, and then they t- take off. So the people who actually live there, who actually stay in Boston, no. And at the very least, this is the key. This is what I was really surprised about. There's at least some decorum, some respectful, you know, banter and discourse in Boston. Here, it's go F yourself. You work for Sinclair. Oh, you're right wing. I'm not going to talk to you. And they get in your face. Then they dox you. Then they leave you nasty voicemails if they don't. Again, these are all real stories. This has happened to me. And I'm going to eventually, probably in the next few months, Kristen, it's going to be hilarious. I've saved all of the threats sent to me. People found my information. Oh, I don't even care where I live. Please feel free to come by into my neighborhood. I know my information is all out there. This is the type of stuff I've never, ever experienced in my entire life doxing from the far left people who disagree with your work putting your public information out i don't know if it's just a sign of the times but i've never ever experienced that in places like boston where i've worked on air minneapolis where i've worked on air and chicago where i've worked on air (laughs) well and what's so crazy is like you said you're an asian american you believe in diversity you had this slot at Como as a newscaster, as a news reporter, you were the only one that was really covering the interesting stuff, the stuff that people really care about. If you poll people on the West Coast in these cities, they will say homelessness is one of their number one concerns. And you were one of the few people covering that. And the what's so weird to me is that the left talks about being committed to diversity and they talk about being committed to allowing diverse people opportunities. Meanwhile, you cover this Proud Boys rally and you're piled on by the fringe left as a white supremacist, as a Nazi. I mean, do they have, do they not have eyes? It's just completely bizarre. And for some reason, Como can't take it you end up being fired from Como. And it's just bizarre to me. It's kind of like when you said these politicians are, the homeless is not in their yards. It's in the yards of of these other people. But I'm assuming that these other people are the people that the politicians claim to care most about. They're probably the lower income, diverse neighborhoods. Yeah, and and for your listener, just for the record, I, I didn't part from Como because of my work Mike, the quality of my work or the lack thereof. It was, like you said, all of the heat, the groundswell of heat, uh, of of controversy uh, that Como, quite frankly, just didn't want to deal with at that point. And look, at the end of the day, I have no uh, ill will or hard feelings towards my colleagues, especially at Como. I also, you know, still stay in touch with many of them. They're my friends. I love them to death. Uh, but I've moved on. 
And that's what is the difference here. You hit it right on the head. It's never been about race or diversity, I'm realizing, especially in this town. It's about ideology and worldview. And what I saw happen firsthand during the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, and, you know, who can be against Black Lives Matter? You know, that statement alone. You know, there's a difference, right? Let's make a distinction right now. The nonprofit that siphoned money, allegedly, and, you know, the leaders buying mansions and, you know, being unable to account for the money and all of that stuff. That's separate, okay, from the actual statement, Black Lives Matter. But what I saw happen in Seattle that so many people didn't report on, I was one of the few just talking about this inconvenient truth, is that Antifa, the far-left activists, hijacked the Black Lives Matter movement and used it as cover to reign terror and destabilize Seattle. And that's the playbook of the far-left and Antifa. That's how they play. But for whatever reason, the liberal media, they don't want to call it out. They don't want to call out what's going on. The mainstream press, many in the mainstream press don't want to deal with that because it's controversial. It'll also, and here's the piece, bring heat onto them. And I think we're at this point now where the vast majority of the reasonable people in Seattle have had enough and recognize they're the majority. They are the majority actually on both sides. It's the fringe far left that's been able to strategically and in, in, in a very sophisticated way, use technology, social media to mobilize, and they've made the most noise. And I think the reasonable people of Seattle have had enough. And that's why you didn't see the reasonable people of Seattle destroying the windows. It was the fringe group. But they made the most noise. They got the most news coverage. So it seemed like they were taking over. But I feel like there's been a massive shift. And it's going to be really interesting moving forward. Uh, what happens. I really look forward. I, I'm hopeful. If you were to ask me, are you hopeful? Yes, I am hopeful that there has been a changing of the guard, that uh, we are moving in a different direction, but there's still a lot of work to be done. We both talked about the immigrant community. How much of this homelessness crisis, based on your reporting, what you've seen, the people you've talked to, is a housing issue? I'm sure that's one part of it, but I, I don't know who you're seeing in Seattle, but the people we see in Portland are mostly white men. I have They're not immigrants. They speak English. The undocumented people seem to be able to house themselves. The documented people seem to be able to house themselves. Um, I know Kevin has seen moms with kids, but in his experience, Kevin Dahlgren from We Heart Seattle, but in his experience, it's... That's a drug issue. Mom's on drugs and usually with a bad guy. And once the guy's out of the picture, Kevin says mom gets rehab and and ends up being okay generally in his experience. But I'm not... I mean, I, I seem to think if this were a housing issue, you would see a mom with five kids played out on the street. And that's not... I mean, this is, at least in Portland, it's really a white man homelessness crisis, probably 90 some percent. Is that what you see in Seattle or are you seeing immigrant populations? No, I mean, I, 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 it's, it's white people. Uh, they're the vast majority of the homeless. Um, and look, I'm not going to judge them. I don't know everyone's situation and circumstances, but I am seeing themes emerge and it's not just about the lack of affordable housing. It's drugs and mental illness. And and about and what percentage of the homeless that you interact with have issues with drugs and mental illness? Vast majority. 
90%. I don't know about the mental illness because I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I haven't been able to assess them, but I know what drugs are and they're using the drugs in front of me. I'd say nine out of 10 homeless people that I encounter have some type of addiction to, to illegal drugs. Uh, I see it every single day and it just breaks my heart to see these people. And they use it so nonchalantly and they know they can use it without any issues. It's been decriminalized to a certain degree. If you have small possession of fentanyl or meth or cocaine or whatever, you're not going to get arrested. And even if you do, for whatever reason, you're just going to be released. The prosecutors aren't going to go after you for that. I mean, the, the prisons, the jails are full. There's a backlog in King County. And then if it gets to the point of prosecution, the judge will probably release you with just a slap on the wrist. I mean, it's just a vicious cycle. But anyway, getting back to your question about the immigrant community, look, in terms of the actual people, I'm not tracking that. I don't know who is. If there's actually a racial back uh, breakdown, I have yet to see the those numbers. I think that'd be fascinating to see what the real breakdown is in terms of you know ethnicity among the homeless. Yeah, as far but as I, I know, none you. of these cities are really keeping any accurate metrics. Exactly. And that's a problem, the lack of accountability and transparency, right? And I think that's intentional because I think that would take a lot of work and that would actually put a baseline measurement and standard in place. And if you're not hitting that as a politician, then the voters can easily point to that. So again, that's another story for another day. But I can tell you, when I refer to the immigrant community here in Seattle, I'm talking about just the regular folks who are just the mom and pops, you know, just like I was mentioning this uh, homeless encampment that just exploded before it was swept in Seattle, uh, you know, on the border of Licton Springs and Greenwood. Man, you've I met Ethiopian, Jamaican, Chinese, you know, Latino immigrants who busted their asses to get these townhouses, right? They're working day and night, sacrificing, and they managed to get a townhouse. And to them, that was the American dream until this homeless encampment moved in. And then when they saw the lack of enforcement, and then they started to see all these social service agencies come, and then they started to see the shelter and the service being rejected, that's when they start to realize, wow, this has now turned into an American nightmare. It's all upside down and backwards. This is not the America I thought. The America that I, I left my country for the dream. If you work hard, you sacrifice, you make it. And that's what these people have done. These immigrants have done. And then they move into Seattle. And then this gets dumped onto them. And then they see the, the lack of response or, or this response where you're giving all of these resources and the homeless aren't taking it, any of it to get better or to get off the streets. That to them is the most confusing piece of the policies here on the West Coast. Yeah, I can't imagine what it would be like to be, be going to like your third or fourth job and have to step over fentanyl addicts laid out on the sidewalks with food all over them and, and services being offered left and right and, and being refused. Um, and my guess is, you know, one of the responses is from these immigrant communities is like, well, where was all this when I was here? I mean, you know, That's I right. really would have appreciated some help with housing. Yeah, and I believe in helping. I believe in support and services to a certain degree. And you can call me a Democrat or whatever, even a socialist if you want, because I believe in the, the social safety net. I believe in, you know, social security. But come on, at a certain point, at what point is enough enough? Who determines that? And that's the problem right now that we're facing in Seattle. How do you get these people to take all of these services? Look, if I were homeless, 
If I was on the street, you know, it, it's, again, if I needed three meals, I have that. If I wanted a shower, I have that. If I want transportation, I have that. There are nonprofits, social service agencies willing to provide all of that so you can start your journey. Now, is it perfect? Is it ideal? Is it exactly what I want? No, but that's not the point. Here in America, especially in these cities like Seattle and Portland, you have access to services and support to start the journey to get off the street. And in, in, in many cases that I've seen, you have people who just say they don't want it and they prefer to live in this lifestyle. You can chalk that up to an addiction. You can chalk that up to mental illness, maybe a combination of both. And you have someone who are just perfectly rational and who are clear headed and say this is the lifestyle that they want. So the real question is, from a policymaker's view, what do you do about these folks who don't want any of this stuff versus the folks who are ready? And that's been one of the most difficult distinctions to make, because I haven't seen that clear distinction yet either. Um, these policies that are being put out by, by our lawmakers, uh, for example, in Seattle, uh, one of the biggest criticism against Mayor Harrell's homelessness agenda is that you put tents and RVs in the same category. And as I mentioned before, you have now RV advocates saying, no, you have to approach people living RVs in a different way versus people living in tents. You know what I'm saying? So th those are the types of distinctions. Those are the nuances that these lawmakers and policymakers have to consider moving forward as they tackle this homeless crisis. How did you gather the courage to report on all these things that other people aren't reporting on and to face that far left progressive cancel culture mob, if you will. Um, because I think, I mean, you, you're more dialed into this than I am. I'm just like some trial lawyer who's curious about what's going on in these cities. But I think these people aren't reporting on this stuff because they're scared. It's like you said, like the, the, the politicians themselves are saying we're basing policy around what will not rile up the the fringe left activists. So how did you how were you able to just go ahead and forge ahead and report on what nobody else wanted to report on? You know, uh, I think it all started off with the question you asked, where am I from? And I think being an outsider has really helped me. Right. I don't have all the roots. Uh, so I came in with an outsider's vantage point. But I brought in my own kind of perspective from Boston as a minority. I've always been a fighter. I've always been the minority. I've gone to a majority white school system, public school system, you know, right outside of Boston. You know, I've always been the minority. I've always been made fun of. I've had to, you know, I've been picked on. So I've had to scrap and fight for everything. So I believe in merit. So when I come here, they come after me. I just push back because I've been doing that my whole life. And I also believe in the journalism. I believe in this, in this craft. I also believe it's a calling for me. So I believe I'm here for a reason, if that makes sense. So I know I have to be here. I'll be provided with the resources and the support. And as long as that's there, as long as I have the support from the community or somebody who believes in my work, I'm going to keep on shining a light on, on what's happening. And you're absolutely right. No, you have many journalists who won't say it, but they'll say, there's no way, Cho. I'll go into that situation. I don't get paid enough. <laughs> you know, I didn't sign up to be a journalist to get paid gobs of money because, you know, worst kept secret, but we don't get paid a lot to do this. 
we do it because, again, I see it as a public service. I see it as, a, again, a calling. I see it as though I'm in Seattle for a particular reason. And if I'm the only one for now to do this, then I'm the only one for now to do this. But that's how I deal with it every single day. Is it difficult? Yeah, absolutely. Have I had moments of, of stress out there and wondering, you know, looking over my shoulder, wondering if an Antifa member is going to come after me? You know, we all know what's happened to uh, Andy No. You know, he's an independent journalist who was based in Portland and he's been beat up so many times. He can't even report in America anymore. He's based in a secret location somewhere in uh, England. I mean, I hope it doesn't come down to that for me, but, you know, I there have been death threats. I filed police reports. I, I've been, you know, most recently at a, you know, abortion rights rally here in Seattle, uh, you know, a month ago. They came after me again. My security guard. What many of your listeners may not realize, I, I go out in, into a lot of these places because with security guards now, because I'm always targeted. You know, there was a campaign in Seattle's Capitol Hill, these stickers going around saying Jonathan Cho is a wet bitch. They're trying to intimidate me like crazy from all different vantage points. You have far left media organizations, you have far left journalists here attacking me. You know, constantly saying, oh, this is the Jonathan Cho who was fired from coma. They're trying to discredit me. They're even going as, so far as to contact the mayor's office and say, don't let Jonathan Cho into press conferences anymore. I mean, that is the type of insane culture here in Seattle. But that just keeps adding fuel to my fire, Kristen. That's why I keep doing this. You keep t trying to deny me. You keep saying, no, I'm going to keep on being there because that's just the way I'm built, I guess. Hope that answers your question. Well, and that's why I love your reporting and why you're one of my heroes for sure. And why I tried to spread your Twitter feed far and wide. And frankly, you're the only person besides Andrea and Kevin at We Heart Seattle that I can really rely on on your Twitter feed to tell me what is going on in Seattle. Because, like you said, nobody else is reporting on it. Now, what would you say to this silent majority? We've talked about how there is a contingent. There must be a rational contingent of people that have elected, for instance, the Seattle city attorney, the Seattle mayor, these more moderate people. What do you say to that silent majority who might be too afraid to speak out? Maybe they're even too afraid to promote you although they're also relying on your reporting. Yeah, I would first off uh, start out by saying you're not alone. Never feel like, you know, you're in this alone. There are many like-minded people like you. It's all about strength in numbers, as cliche as that may sound, but it's really mobilizing, talking to your neighbors, getting to know your neighbors. If this, you know, homeless crisis, crime, whatever illegal drug use is, on your doorstep, you got to mobilize, you got to get involved in the in the civic process, you know, just being the silent majority, you know, it's up to you if you choose to, you're going to let the bullies continue to run the streets. And that's what happens. And that's been my experience growing up. The moment you finally push back against the bully, you start to realize, oh, wait, they're not that big a deal after all. And the bullies, the moment you start fighting back, pushing back, they'll stand down. Will you get a bloody lip on occasion? Will you get a black eye? Sure. You got to be prepared for that on occasion. But I believe once you start mobilizing, others start to see, oh, wait, this person's doing this. Oh, this person's finally pushing back. You start to realize, oh, my gosh, 
you're going to start a movement to push back against these people. And I think that's what really needs to happen. Look, I want to be very careful right now, right? I, I'm not going to judge somebody based on labels because I just said, you know, mo, you know, on your podcast earlier, I don't want to be labeled, put into, you know, pigeonholed, put into, you know, an unfair basket. Get to know these people. All I want to do is start with a conversation. And if you'd be surprised, even some of the far left activists, once you actually get to talk to them, you may not agree on everything, but there may be some common ground. Try to build that consensus, the common ground. That's what I try to do on the streets. I have to negotiate when I'm not running, you know, away from, you know, a far left activist or Antifa member trying to, you know, beat me down. You know, I try to find consensus out there. What do we agree on? What can we build off? of? Can we at least put aside some of our differences and at least agree on maybe one issue and build off of that? I think if there's more of that, if there's more negotiation, more talking, getting to know our neighbors instead of burying our heads in the sand and hoping it all goes away or our politicians will handle it, then I really feel like you're going to start to see a difference. I, I feel like neighbors at the end of the day have to take back their communities. That's the only way. Don't don't depend on the police only. Don't depend on policymakers or lawmakers only. You've got to take back. Uh, and that's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm seeing. The success that I'm seeing, like I told you, that immigrant community in Lichten Springs, Greenwood, they decided to get together as a neighborhood. They formed their group on social media they were giving each other tips. What type of locks should I buy for my spigots? People were buying each other locks. People were like, what kind of surveillance cameras can I get you? They were helping each other install it. That's the type of stuff that needs to happen. And when these activists come, when you know people, criminals even, maybe decide to come back, I'm not advising this, but what they, they decided to do was say, hey, we're going to stand together and we're not going to allow this to happen. What kind of projects are you involved with that we should be looking forward to? Well, uh, I think in the next few weeks, uh, I'm, I'm going to be going to uh, Spokane, Washington to cover arguably what's already been reported as the largest homeless encampment in the entire state. More than uh, 650 people living there. Um, I'm trying to figure out how it got to this point, why it's being allowed to flourish, what's going to be done about it. Uh, so I'm going to be covering that story in, in Spokane. But I'm also going to be following the story of uh, these far left activists here in Seattle, uh, the mutual aid group called Stop the Sweep Seattle. I've already launched two stories. The only one here in this town doing investigative work following uh, this group's tactics. Again, I want to be very clear. Moving homeless people from one encampment to another is not illegal. But the reason why it's newsworthy is that the mayor of Seattle is not releasing the sweep schedule for encampments in certain communities uh, to the public because they said they don't want to tip off the protesters. But here's the inconvenient truth. The activists, mutual aid, stop the sweeps people, they're ending up at these sweeps anyway because, according to my sources, some of these social service agencies that are going out there doing outreach, they're leaking information to stop the sweep. So everyone's compromised, Okay. So anyway, that's why it's a very interesting story. What is the mayor going to do about Stop the Sweep Seattle? Clearly a group that has already impacted his policy on homelessness. Frankly, it's undercutting it because the mayor is trying to get the homeless off the streets. These people are keeping the homeless on the streets who are refusing shelter and service options being offered. So that's a that's going to be an ongoing story. And of course, um, Look, I, I want to, at the very least, conclude and end, and I'd be happy to answer more questions. But 
on this note, I want to tell the stories of the homeless, the people, the success stories as well. There are men and women who are getting off the streets with the help of We Heart Seattle, with the help of some of the other social aid service agencies being deployed by, you know, the county, the King County Regional Homelessness Authority and by, you know, Union Gospel Mission, Salvation Army, Reach Ministry. There are success stories out there that there are people who are making it. And those are the positive stories I want to highlight as well. And we just don't see enough of that, especially when it comes to local news, mainstream media. I love that you're covering the Spokane story because I went to Gonzaga in Spokane. And when I was there, Spokane is, you know, it's Eastern Washington, much like Eastern Oregon. It is known as a more conservative place it's not a place that is known for high housing costs. It's nothing like Seattle. And yet, like you said, biggest homeless encampment in the state, apparently. Yep. And what I'm hearing, uh, I have some other reporters, they're local reporters. Um, you know, they're doing the best that they can, but they're limited, right? They're not even allowed to go into this encampment unless they, you know, have, you know, another person with them or a security guard in some cases. So they're not really covering it in depth. So I'm really trying to do that. What I'm trying to do is embed. I'm going to attempt to stay there overnight and see what's really happening in this encampment. But yeah, what what I'm hearing on the ground is that, you know, a lot of these people, they went to Spokane, but then, you know, this is kind of an affordability thing. They start to realize, oh, wait, prices are going crazy. And these were people who were maybe staying with mom or dad and, you know, they realized they were only going to do it temporarily. But then they ended up just saying, you know what, I'm just going to go onto the streets. Again, that's what I'm just hearing initially. It's not everyone like that, but there are some cases like that. And next thing you know, one tent moves in, 12 move in, 50 move in. And it's just gotten to this point now where it almost has this Woodstock-like feel. You know, you don't have too many reports of crime happening here or anything Along those lines, you just have a lot of these homeless people who are trying to figure out what their next step's going to be. So I really want to find out what the real story is. Uh, you know, that's the hope. Well, thank you for that. And I love that you're chasing all the real stories in Washington State, particularly in Seattle, and giving us some glimpse into what is actually going on around there. And like you said, video doesn't lie. And the amazing thing is you're ensconced in all of this and you've got video going. So you're not making this up out of whole cloth. We get experience it all along with you on your Twitter feed via video. That's the amazing part of this journalism that you're doing. Yeah, and I'm going to continue to try. So as long as I'm in Seattle, this is going to be my beat. This is going to be my area of focus. And if you don't mind, I just want to quickly plug. Look, we're trying to expand. You know, we're a nonprofit at the end of the day. And, you know, we don't run ads. We don't have sponsors. Um, we, we are, you know, doing this strictly out of, you know, support donations. So, you know, that's something that, you know, just part of why I joined Discovery Institute is wasn't for the salary necessarily. In fact, uh, you know, I'm taking a shave, I'm taking a pay cut to join this, but I really did it for the work. And again, to do this without the restrictions to truly be independent. And we want to expand this team right now. I'm pretty much just one person trying to put out all these stories, but, what I'm saying is in the coming months, we're going to really need uh, support, financial support as well to really expand this team. So, Kristen, I hope a lot of your listeners are like you who really value this type of journalism. Uh, and I'm looking to really create partnerships with uh, viewers, with listeners who really believe in this type of journalism and who believe that this type of journalism is is needed in order to you know, further our democracy in, in, a, in a healthy way. 
because you know you can't make informed decisions if you don't have all the information. And frankly, right now, local media, they're not covering this stuff, as you said. They're not. And if we want to know what's really going on in Seattle, we need to support you. How do we donate? You can go on our uh, website, fixhomelessness.org. Uh, there's a donation link there as well. Um, it's, it's a write-off, full transparency. It goes straight into uh, the program to really you know, further this type of journalism. Again, it's fixhomelessness.org. And there are multiple levels to donate as little as five bucks uh, just to help. Every dollar makes a difference. Well, and for Pete's sake, this is how you make a living. So everybody out there listening to this, this is how Jonathan makes a living. If you're entertained by his Twitter feed, if you're informed at all by what he's doing, donate because otherwise it doesn't exist. The reason the media isn't reporting on this isn't just because they're terrified of the fringe left. That's a big part of it. But also because it doesn't pay anything. It doesn't pay what it used to. They can't afford to send Jonathan's out and videotape all this stuff. So they're just not doing it. They're putting people behind desks and reading stuff off of paper. Yeah, you hit it right on the head. And this is the first time I've gone down this road of really depending on the community. So it's really going to be a test, right, of getting the word out. But then once we do that, we need support. If the community, you know, funds us, then great, we're going to continue. If they don't, then this type of journalism disappears. But I'm going to be here for at least for the next year. So we'll see where it goes. It's also going to be a time to experiment, right? We all know, and maybe your listeners don't know, but the entire journalism industry is going through something called the Great Resignation. And that basically, when it comes to television news, reporters are realizing hey, they're dealing with all these crazy stresses. They can't, you know, be with their families on the holidays and they're ex being expected to do more with less. So they're quitting. They're going into other industries like public relations. But like I said, once that happens, you start to lose veteran journalists. And we're, I mean, Seattle has lost more than a dozen journalists with 20 plus years experience who know the streets, who know the politics, who know City Hall, who know the government, the way things work. Who's going to replace that? And that's a loss to the community when we don't have journalists who really care about the community. So all I'm trying to do is I'm just one piece of the big pie, and I want to continue this work, but we can't do it again without uh, listeners, generous uh, listeners and donors who want to see this work continue for the sake of the community. Well, I have been admiring your work for some time. I've been following you since you got to Seattle because you do such a darn good job. And I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing all of this with us and talking to us about what it's like doing what you do. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Like I said, I think the, the biggest blessing for me is not just the, you know, privilege to cover these stories um, and to grow as a journalist. It's these relationships. I truly do consider uh, you guys my friends. You know, Kristen, we've just gotten to know each other as well. I appreciate all your support, but meeting the people along this journey all over the country, all over the region. That's been the coolest part of this. So thank you again for just all your support. And, and I hope you stay tuned. Well, I'm a huge fan, so I'm going to stay tuned. I have been staying tuned because you're the only place I can go to find out what's going on in Seattle. So you heard Jonathan. If you want to continue to understand the real story about Seattle, about 
particularly about the homelessness crisis, go to fixhomelessness.org and donate so that this man can continue to provide you with this kind of content. And so it doesn't disappear into the abyss. And we're just left with these people reading to us from behind desks or in rain jackets, like 50 feet away from a scene with some cop cars behind them trying to explain to you what's what what they think might be going on. I mean, the only way you're going to get the kind of real time video that Jonathan shows on his Twitter is to make sure that you're funding his work. So Jonathan, thank you so much. Loved having you on. Like I said, you're a hero of mine and I have been following you for some time and I am just absolutely thrilled to be able to meet you virtually and talk to you uh, via this podcast. And I'm just so glad you were generous with your time. Thank you so much because you're obviously a busy guy and I'm sure right after we get off of this uh, call, you're going to run out there and um, get back into the game. So we appreciate it and thanks again. Yeah, no, I, I'd love to uh, do this again. And, uh, you know, I rarely inject my opinion, but uh, I felt comfortable enough to do that with you and your audience. So, you know, I shared a little bit more than I usually do. So it was fun. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad you were comfortable doing that. No, you're a great host. So thank you. I, uh, You know what? I never even asked because I didn't want to get too personal until I finally saw you in person. But I didn't know you're a trial attorney. Yeah, I'm not a journalist. I never have been. I don't pretend to be. I mean, I have a point of view. I'm open about that. I'm, you know, I'm obviously open about the fact that I'm a fan of your work. And I try to showcase and and publicize people that I think are doing incredible work and shining a light on things that we're not seeing regularly in the media. And I started this podcast because I wasn't seeing anything. There are no Jonathan shows in Portland. There aren't any. And there certainly aren't any in the media. And I wanted to find out what the hell was going on in the city of Portland and people were willing to sit down and spill their guts about it. And I just got sick of repeating over and over again what they were saying. And so I started pressing a record button and I didn't think anybody was ever going to listen to it, but it turns out they're hungry for it. You hit it on the head. And that is what we're seeing a lack of, a lack of information flow. And I, I can tell you this right now, I've never seen in my 20 years, a local media, at least here in Seattle, it's like crippled. And when I was at Como even, I started to see the bleed. It's the worst kept secret in news. Local news stations, newspapers are dying, right? Because you're losing viewers. Everyone's going to social. It's a fragmented landscape, right? So television news, they're now just trying to maintain the shrinking pie. They're not adding new viewers because they know everything's going digital. People like you are starting podcasts. You're competing now. Your competition for Como News, for the K2s in, in Portland, you know, which is also owned by Sinclair. That's our sister station. So it's really fascinating to be here in this space. And that's why I have no problem now stepping away from mainstream media. Because, you know, there's a part of it, you know, some of my friends are like, you know, Jonathan, you were on this trajectory. What about the prestige? I'm like, I really don't care. Because we're not covering the stories that need to be covered anymore. 
We're only covering stories that are brand safe. And that basically means we need to be able to sell it to our advertisers. It's a business, Kristen. It's no longer a public trust. It's a business. You can quote me on all that, by the way, if this is still being recorded. <laughs> well, good. I'll use it because you have just very nicely articulated what is going on in media and what we're all seeing is this vacuum. It used to be the fourth estate, right? It was the fourth pillar of democracy. It was a part of our system of checks and balances. It would inform and educate the public, act as a watchdog. It would have great influence on public affairs. It was our, it, it was part of a healthy society. It, it fostered debate. The vibrant free press is gone. We don't have a Woodward and Bernstein anymore. Those days are over. I mean, just scroll through the New York Times. It's an absolute and total disgrace compared to what was going on even just 15, 20 years ago. Do you know how much that costs? They want daily grind. Most TV stations need to fill the holes each day to sell advertising. Investigative units, if you go down the list of most newspapers and TV stations, the investigative unit has been disbanded. Well, yeah, because of what you just said. It costs too much money. That's right. And that's why we should all go and donate to fixhomelessness.org. They can't afford it. You hit it right on the head. Thank you for acknowledging that. I mean, I just, I, I don't know. Most most consumers are like, oh, hey, hey, what's the next story? What's the next story? They don't think about what does it take to put it on? What does it take to get that scoop? You know, and, you know, their deadlines, their day turns. But, man, this investigative work, it is so important. And right now there are so many stories, I bet, in Portland that are not being covered. The, uh, politicians who need to be held accountable. All this, you know, stuff happening behind the scenes that just needs to be outed. And it's not happening because the journalism right now is is crippled. It's weak. Well, and not only is it money, a lot of it's cultural stuff. People just, they don't want, they're too afraid. They don't want to wade into this. They don't want a, a pile on, you know, like you got. They don't, they don't want that. And you need, you've got to have thick skin. If, if you're going to do this kind of reporting in Seattle or Portland, or I'm sure San Francisco or LA, but certainly Seattle and Portland, where there are these little cancellation bubbles and, and there's the loudest voices in the room that are just drowning everybody else out. And you've got your silent majority quaking in their boots. I get it. And that's why I don't expect everyone to be cut from the same cloth that I am. I'm not saying I'm any better or worse. I'm just built for this business. You know what I'm saying? And you're right. You've got to have thick skin. And in, in fairness to your audience, I don't expect everyone to, you know, mobilize and, and do that. But at a certain point, you got to make a decision. My next story coming out this week that I'm launching is going to be on this place called, you know, it's Third, Third Avenue and Pine. It's like known as this ongoing drug den. The mayor cleared it. Well, it all came back. It's already back. It's been months. It came roaring back, but nobody's reporting on it. I've been going back. It's scary. That's the one place I take. I know I'm taking a risk. Because people have been murdered there recently. And all of that has come back. It's just now moved down the street to the next portion of 3rd Avenue. And nobody's reporting on the mayor doesn't want to talk about it. It's, it's bad optics. And you see the tourists. You see all these, like, like, Asian tourists. There's so many Asians in Seattle. Just come, but they're like, what? You see it in their face. It's like, what is going on here? People doing meth. People slouched over. 
people stealing. It's this vicious cycle. You steal from all the retail stores to sell underwear for pennies on the dollar so you can get your 10 bucks to buy your three blue pills, you know, so you can get high. The cycle continues. All this illegal drug use, open air, black market. It's just wild. It's it's unstoppable. And, and you just see police drive by. That's it. They just do drive-bys. There's no enforcement. Because they know, I mean, retail theft, drug use, those aren't crimes anymore that will be prosecuted. Catch and release. Meanwhile, it's almost like you just, it's part of doing business in Seattle. You either deal with it or you leave. It's crazy. You know I'm not making this up. I know you're not making it up because I tune into you and I am a avid watcher of your Twitter feed and all the videos that you're posting on there. And because I live in Portland where the same thing is going on, absolute madness and chaos. Priority one calls are the only ones that SPD really responds to now. If you have theft, someone burglary, they'll show up maybe hour and a half. This is America. That is what is so stunning that this is happening in america yeah i mean i live in an ostensibly nice neighborhood by any and all accounts and there was a carjacking at the end of my street a mom in her car at gunpoint Uh, why my kids can't walk on the trails nearby anymore five minutes away because the last time we were there a guy pulled his penis out and was waving it around at me aggressively and fortunately they were far enough behind me that i was basically ready to jump him and i told him he needed to turn around and go the other direction and fortunately he saw that i was serious and he did but you know i would have had to take things into my own hands this is five minutes away from my house exactly you know, Kristen, what we've just shared in the last like three, four minutes, I mean, our whole conversation today, this is not being picked up by national media. Let that sink in. We're both, we're not going crazy. But if people heard what we were saying, it's almost like we're making this up. That's what my friends from the outside are saying. My friends in Chicago and Boston is like, is that really happening? And that's why what I'm doing with my video is the only proof that I have. Yeah, I mean, when I tell stories to people like the one I just told you, I don't know, 75% of the people I live around that are in my circle are going to say things like, well, it's a big city and it's urban and all big cities have problems and all big cities have crime and crime is down and it's not like it was in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, fortunately, you've got your video. But do you see why what we're talking about could be, we could be seen as like conspiracy theorists, crazy. If you're not living in it, you listen to what we're saying. They're like, wait, we think they're like two reasonable, educated, rational people. But what they're saying doesn't make sense with the America that I know. I say, come come to Seattle, come to Portland. I will show you firsthand. Leave here and then you'll see what's going on. It's all upside down. Nobody believes me. Well, no. I mean, those of us who follow you on your Twitter feed, we believe you. (laughs) It's all right there. And that's what I love about you and what I love about your work. So thank you, Jonathan, again, for coming on. Love talking to you. I just think that you're wonderful. You're one of my heroes. You're out there and you're videotaping all of this. And you're, I don't even know how you update everything as quickly as you do. My God, there, if you want to know what's going on in Seattle real time, get on Jonathan Cho's Twitter feed at Cho Show and please donate to fix 
homelessness.org. Thanks again, Jonathan. Isn't he great? Jonathan Cho, everybody. He is so good, and we are so lucky to have him. We actually taped that a while ago, like last summer, we taped that interview and it's just such a shame for y'all and for Jonathan frankly that it took me so darn long to get this thing up and maybe that's a reason that I need to um I don't know maybe I do need to monetize this thing so that I can be more fair to the people that I have on and and to you all and and get this stuff out more quickly and in real time I've got this queue of these things. I mean, sometimes some of you will mail me or text me or DM me and say, you know, how, who else have you interviewed and what are you keeping from us? And I can't, I, I'm not going to say because it'll upset you, but when I do say it upsets people (laughs) and it was upsetting to me that I had kept Jonathan from you for so long, but as luck has it. And I swear to God, I mean, luck. I have been invited to a leadership conference by, um, Michael Schellenberger and Andrea Suarez. Of course, Michael Schellenberger ran for governor of California. He wrote the book San Francisco and Andrea Suarez is friend of the show. We heart Seattle. Very, very, kindly help me get invited to this leadership retreat that I'm at here right now in Seattle. So I'm talking to you from a uh, room in Seattle and I was on third and pine tonight and it was not a good place to be alone. Certainly. Um, and it wasn't that late. It was eight 30, but Jonathan's right. I mean that we recorded this a while ago and the drug den is back it's just a long line of people bent over smoking off pills off foil and it's you can't walk down the sidewalk there it's not a good place to be walking around alone uh certainly not as a female and much like portland frankly But I'm just really, really lucky to be here. It's just my first night. I haven't attended any of the sessions yet. um, And I can't wait to share to the extent I'm able to. Uh, I don't know how much I can share or not. I, I mean, frankly, you guys, I can't even believe I'm here. And the other thing that we have absolutely got to talk about that is crazy for 2023 is that we were named on Coin. TV on Coins website for five Pacific Northwest based podcasts you can listen to in 2023. And that was on January 2nd, 2023. And we're on there. We were listed number one rational in Portland. I I can't even believe this is happening. I can't believe that we made it to coin and we were listed as a podcast to listen to in 2023. And I also can't believe that I am sitting here at this Seattle leadership retreat and the subtitle is real solutions for homelessness and addiction in North America. It's going on, uh, this weekend, um, January 6th through 8th. And a bunch of us are here and at the treat of, uh, Michael Schellenberger and Andrea Suarez and their 
wonderful heads put together and 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 i know kevin dahlgren from we heart is involved in a fair amount of this too of course there we're trying to put together this coalition on homelessness and addiction and we're gathering to try to develop some kind of unified vision and thank god for people like andrea suarez and michael schellenberger and and kevin dahlgren and all these leaders that are here and i'm just you know i'm i'm just honored to be here i'm i'm so humbled to be here because i'm not i don't feel like i'm i'm a leader i feel like i interview leaders and i feel like i i try to spotlight leaders and people like jonathan and people like andrea and people like kevin and people people that are out on the ground uh boots on the ground as andrea says and i try to spotlight leaders like like tom wolf you know, people who were caught up in addiction, who lived homeless in the tenderloin, who have turned their lives around and they know what works and what doesn't. And they have two eyes and two ears and they're looking around and seeing that what is going on in San Francisco, Seattle and Portland is not working. We're trying it their way and it's not working. And in fact, it's getting worse. Those are the leaders. I'm just I just want to get their stories out there. And so I am super humbled to be here and thank God for people like Andrea Suarez, who was somehow able to get me here. And um, anyway, I, I can't wait to tell you all about it. And thank you, everybody, for listening and for telling a friend, for rating our podcast, for subscribing and liking it, because without you all, we would not be featured in coin news absolutely not it's just incredible i can't even believe we were listed on the podcast to listen to in 2023 and i can't believe that i'm at this seattle leadership retreat i love you all what a crazy start to 2023 this has been i'm so grateful for all of you i am so thankful for all of you i'm thankful for this opportunity to be able to chat with you and that you even want to listen to five minutes of what I have to say, let alone like four hours with people like Aaron Schmatz from Portland Police Association. God, that was a good one. And so many of you listened to that whole darn thing and were just as riveted to it as I was. And God bless you for it. And you know, it's funny. I walked into that interview thinking, I'm not going to enjoy this man. I don't believe in police unions. I don't believe in public unions generally. Certainly police unions should not exist. They're just around to take care of bad apples. And I forgot how this city has completely kneecapped our police force in the same way that it it's kneecapped the firefighters. I mean, without these unions, frankly, these public safety bureaus in the city of Portland would be absolute toast. And I learned that from the firefighters union and from Aaron Schmott. So I really, I just really appreciate people like Aaron and, and Isaac McLennan and Maria Fuge for, for coming on and, and shining a light on what's going on in these public safety bureaus. And hopefully now that Renee Gonzalez is in office, we're going to really turn that around. You know, he's in control of that fire bureau now. Thank God. And he's also doing BOAC, that Bureau of Emergency Communications. So hopefully he'll be able to make a dent in some of those things. I think those are great bureau assignments for him. And something else 
I can't believe everything that's going on right now. Something else we have to talk about is the article that I helped Nancy Rommelman with in Washington Examiner. So go to WashingtonExaminer.com. It was published December 29th, 2022 by Nancy. I did a whole bunch of research for her um, and assisted her with this article because it was so important to me to get out the story of Rachel Abraham, who was murdered by her significant other, Mohammed Adan. She had six children, and he had a strangulation history, a criminal history, and Nancy details all of it. It's an incredible article by friend of the show, Nancy Rommelman. She was one of our very first guests, probably put the podcast on the map. And um, I'm. she talks about me a little bit in it because I played a teeny tiny part in helping her decipher that court file. And, you know, I have not practiced criminal law in 20 years, you guys, but we couldn't get a darn person to talk on the record about this thing. Nobody who practices criminal law would, would touch it with their name. Certainly not. Uh, they did. A lot of them talked to me on background. Thank God. But nobody would go on the record and talk about it. So she had to have some dummy civil litigator look at this thing. And, um, I did. And what I found was shocking and horrific. And I think you're going to think the same thing. So go to WashingtonExaminer.com. It's called a murder in Portland by Nancy Rommelman. And, and please read that article. So much going on right now. We've got this retreat. We've got the coin publicity, which was huge. We've got the Nancy Rommelman article, a billion irons in the fire right now. And I have you all to thank for it. So find me on Twitter at rational in PDX. Send me a message if you want to connect um, and follow along on there and stay tuned for our next episode. Love you all. Thank you so much. Please remember to tell a friend and we will see you next time. Thank you.